uh, rural Americans have the same aspirations, the same needs, the same uses of the Internet as everyone else. It shouldn't surprise anyone when I say, you know, rural Arkansans, rural Missourians subscribe to gigabit services too. It does surprise people. It surprises people at the FCC. It surprises policymakers. It doesn't surprise people who live and work and spend their lives in rural America. This is episode 268 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As the question of how best to bring high-quality internet access to rural America becomes more pressing, rural cooperatives are rapidly taking a leading role. This week's guest, John Chambers, works with electric cooperatives that decide they want to offer high-speed connectivity. John spent time working for the FCC and has a special understanding of how the agency approaches review and funding for telecommunications. In this conversation, he and Christopher talk about the Connect America Fund. Learn more about John's firm, visit their website at conexon.us. Now here's Christopher and John Chambers from Connexon. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and today I'm once again with John Chambers, a partner at Connexon. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. You've been on the show multiple times recently talking about how rural electric cooperatives can basically solve this problem for all of rural America. Uh, do you want to just briefly remind us what Connexon is? Connexon is a consulting firm that was started by my partner, Randy Quint, who conceived of, designed, uh, and oversaw the construction of the very first fiber-to-the-home network built on an electric cooperative infrastructure to 100% of the membership without any federal support, without any state support, uh, without any grants, without any um, government loans. Uh, And today, that project, which is Como Connect in central Missouri, makes available to all of its members gigabit, 100 megabit per second service, uh, fiber to the home service. Uh, Randy took that design and he has applied it to other cooperatives. And he and I work together exclusively with electric cooperatives, replicating the Como success anywhere there's a cooperative that's interested in serving its members with uh, broadband internet service. And today we're going to be talking more about a important FCC program, the Connect America Fund, which uh, you and I have both been very critical of in its in its initial stages, the first two phases. But we're coming to one of the most important phases where finally some money will be available to non-incumbent carriers and how important it is to get this right. Um, maybe you can just start by letting us know what's at stake with the next round of the Connect America Fund approach. This is a critical stage in the evolution of the Connect America Fund. The amount of money that the FCC has put in this budget, and this is a budget for an auction of funds for those to um, bid for and provide uh, broadband service. Uh, The the total budget is relatively small. It's uh, less than 5% of the amount of money that the FCC spends on rural broadband programs. Uh, That is to say, every year the FCC administers over $4.5 billion of programs for rural broadband. The Connect America Fund auction uh, will be a program of $198 million a year over 10 years. The size of it aside, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is the FCC has set out 
uh, bidding tiers, service levels that far exceed the levels that the FCC has required of the telephone companies in the other Connect America Fund programs. So in, in the other programs, the FCC has required 10 megabits per second uh, down and 1 megabit per second upload speeds, uh, and in some cases, 25.3. But the vast majority of the money today that the FCC spends goes to a service that the FCC itself doesn't consider to be broadband, 10.1 speeds. In this auction, the FCC is has set up a structure where a bidder can bid to deliver gigabit service or 100 megabit per second service or 25 or 10. So the importance of that, to my way of thinking, is to the extent the FCC sees that there are bidders for gigabit service that can bid on that service, that's within the same budget that it provided, in fact, far less of a budget than it provided to the telephone companies well, I, I would hope that that proves something to the policymakers. Uh, the second important point about an auction is that the auction will be open to all types of companies using all types of technologies. There too, this is a this is an evolution in the FCC's approach. Uh, even though the 1996 Telecom Act permitted multiple providers of service uh, in rural areas. Uh, uh, able to receive universal service support, still today, uh, nearly all of the funding goes to the same incumbent telephone companies that have been receiving funding for decades. Again, even though it's less than 5% of the total budget, uh, there's an opportunity for those who are not incumbents, who are not incumbent telephone companies, to bid for, to deliver service, and if nothing else, to make a point that there are other types of companies for me, especially the companies that we work with, rural electric cooperatives, uh, that can demonstrate to the FCC, demonstrate to the public, demonstrate that they're capable of building, operating, maintaining fiber networks and delivering broadband service and voice services to, uh, to their subscribers. And these rules are not yet finalized. There's, they'll be finalized in the coming months, and then the auction will be next year, in theory. That's right. There is currently a public notice that uh, the FCC issued earlier this month. The public notice uh, seeks comment on the final rules the FCC will adopt for the auction. The comment cycle is, is ongoing. Comments are due in September, reply comments in October, and I, all of us expect the FCC will adopt final rules for the auction before the end of the year, which tees up the auction to occur in 2018. And one of the things that, that we're really uh, focused on is making sure this auction goes well, that those who bid and win do a good job, because that will influence how future funds are spent by the FCC. Yes, and I think that's, that's the critical point and why uh, I'm so uh, pleased that you invited me to talk with you today. Uh, you know, success in this auction could well influence future funding by the FCC, future decisions by the FCC about how best to spend the public's money, uh, the levels of service uh, that carriers are capable of providing in rural areas. We know from our experience where co-ops are providing gigabit and 100 megabit per second symmetrical services, we know what rural Americans adopt when those services are made available to them. In markets where we have 
clients offering service, uh, we find upwards of 40% of rural Americans uh, subscribe to gigabit service. Uh, I know that the FCC, the leadership of the FCC, has made comments in the past about how rural Americans don't need those kinds of services. But I would hope that one of the things this auction could demonstrate is that there are companies capable of providing that service, demonstrate that, that rural Americans will subscribe to those services, and perhaps, if all goes really well, the FCC will recognize that they ought to follow more of what consumers want than their own notions of what's sufficient for some Americans as compared to what other Americans subscribe to. Uh, rural Americans have the same aspirations, the same needs, the same uses of the Internet as everyone else, and it shouldn't surprise anyone when I say you know, rural Arkansans or rural Missourians subscribe to gigabit services too. It, it does surprise people. It surprises people at the FCC. It surprises policymakers. Um, I'll tell you who it doesn't surprise. It doesn't surprise the people who live and work and spend their lives in rural America. We want to make sure that, that these rules are set to prevent uh, fraud, basically, whether it's intentional or, or perhaps one might say unintentional in the sense that um, making sure that the FCC has crystal clear rules to make sure those who bid have the ability to actually deliver what they're promising rather than speculating. And I think some will, some will view this, um, you know, they'll be frustrated and angry even at, at some of the this, things we're going to talk about in terms of the rules we'd like to see. But I want to make sure people understand where you're coming from. This isn't hypothetical for you. You've seen this already happen in the rural broadband experiments. You are very familiar with the history of fraud in these FCC programs. And so um, I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit about the experience from the rural broadband experiments and how, um, you know, I think a program that you helped to design, you might be frustrated with some of the people who won some bids and did not deliver. Uh, I did work at the FCC for a time. Uh, and I was hired in 2012 and asked by the chairman of the FCC to begin working on the reform of some of the FCC's spending programs, in particular programs that had been beset with fraud. Uh, the FCC administers uh, important programs, programs that meet uh, the needs of Americans who would otherwise not have access to telecommunication services. But unfortunately, each of the FCC's programs, uh, programs to help people who are deaf, um, programs to help schools and libraries, programs to help low-income Americans, uh, programs to help people in rural and high-cost areas, each of those programs has had fraud, hundreds of millions of dollars of fraud. My experience um, and my review of the programs when I was at the FCC was that Part of what leads to the fraud are uh, the imprecision of the FCC's rules and the willingness of some program participants to take advantage of imprecise rules. In the, you mentioned the rural broadband experiment, that was an experiment to hold an auction and the, very similar to the auction that will be held for the Connect America Fund, an experiment to hold an auction and to see what the bidding behavior would be to see what, if you, if you allowed for many different kinds of companies to participate, to see how they would bid. What we found, among other things, is that there were folks willing and capable of bidding for and building networks, 
And we found a lot of folks who would bid more for the hope that the money would allow them to build a business. We found bids of, I'll use, I guess, maybe the, the most famous example, a uh, person who bid a dollar. Uh, that is a dollar, not a dollar a customer, not a dollar for a geographic area, bid a dollar uh, in order to get the FCC's imprimatur that it was a uh, an awardee of an FCC program as a marketing tool. Uh, we found people who bid and then were unable to fulfill the FCC's requirements, unable to get a letter of credit, unable to provide financial information, unable to get uh, eligible telecommunications carrier status from the states, which is a core requirement in the statute, unable to deliver the services uh, that they bid for. My concern about this auction is that the FCC has yet to take the steps necessary to be clear and precise about um, what kinds of companies and what kinds of technologies are capable of, capable of delivering services in the various tiers the FCC has. The, the, the FCC's structure almost invites people to bid for more than they can deliver because by bidding for the higher tiers, the 100 megabit per second tier or the gigabit tier, that gives you a greater weight in the auction that gives you an advantage in the auction bidding. Um, and yet, the FCC's ability to uh, monitor, to evaluate, to, to know for sure whether a bidder is going to be able to deliver the service, to deliver 100 megabit per second service or gigabit service to anyone that wishes service in the geographic area they're bidding for, the FCC's abilities are limited. They have limited staff. They have limited technical capability. They will be overwhelmed with the number of bids. And so, therefore, unless the FCC does something far more than it's suggesting even in its current rulemaking, um, the FCC could be overwhelmed with bidders, and their response would be to allow all bidders to participate, and they will see what would very much a repeat of the bidding behavior in the last auction of this sort. That is, people who bid and then aren't capable of fulfilling their bid. Uh, and that's, that's worrisome to me and others who work in rural areas trying to get broadband networks built. Because as I described before, this is the promise. In some areas, subsidies are needed. In most of the areas we work, you can build a network without any federal support. But when you get down to areas which have two or three homes per mile, it is necessary to get some kind of support just because the revenue is not there uh, to build, operate, maintain a network. We, those of us who live and work in rural America, all have a stake in this auction getting done right. The FCC, uh, it needs to adopt clear guidance that certain technologies are only capable of certain services, uh, that certain technologies can't bid for more than they're capable of delivering. And I know that the FCC desires to be technologically neutral in its approach. Um, but technological neutrality and that of technological savvy are two different things. There are just certain things that can't be delivered by certain technologies. And the FCC ought to be clear that if you have a particular capability, a particular approach, you could bid in one tier. If you have other capabilities, you might be able to bid in another tier. 
I think one of the most um, obvious examples of this would be satellite services, something that we've increasingly seen the FCC willing to accept as a broadband technology from what we can tell from, for instance, maps that they release of who has access to broadband. So um, I think we could just quickly dispense with satellite should not be one that is considered to be delivering a high quality broadband, whether it's, you know, 100 megabits, a gigabit, or even if it's 25 megabits, um, you've noted that there's a technical test that should be a part of this that would disqualify satellite. Well, satellite and any provider of service has to be able to deliver voice service. That's uh, fundamental to Section 254 of the Communications Act. That is, this is support for telecommunications services, voice services. Um, broadband is included, but it's not separate. That is, the FCC can only provide support to those who are capable of providing high-quality voice service. Now, the FCC has adopted a test, at least suggested a test in its rules. If the voice service that you provide, the, the broadband service you provide, uh, has high latency, greater than 100 milliseconds, then the voice service has to be able to be tested and scored under an, an, an old and well-known type of test called a mean opinion score, which tests voice quality. For one, I am skeptical that satellite voice, uh, which has latency of three-quarters of a second or a second and a half in a, in a double-hop uh, voice call, that if you properly conduct a MOS test, that you find the scores that the FCC says are necessary in order to receive support. I mean, I would withhold judgment until I saw the tests, how the tests were conducted, uh, what the actual scores were. I think any tests of that sort ought to be open for public inspection. It, it isn't uh, currently all the FCC is suggesting that any bidder certify that, that they have conducted such a test and gotten certain scores. Uh, I think for something like voice, which I have young kids, they hate to talk on the phone. You know, they may think texting and Snapchat and everything else is more important than voice. But the Communications Act still holds voice at a premium, especially for support in rural areas. You've got to be able to deliver voice. And uh, I think that's true for satellite. It's important to remember that for a lot of people who may have cell phone reception in their yards, they may not have it in their house. And this is still a public safety issue, uh, especially in rural areas. So um, I think that's, it's, it's good to remember. But I'd like to move on to what I think is one of the most important pieces, which is the carrier of last resort, remembering that, that this, is not, uh, this is not the Rural Broadband Experiments Program. This is a program that is designed to make sure no one is left out. And one of the things that you're really pushing for is for the FCC to certify technologies that would make sure that everyone can receive it, regardless of whether you're on the wrong side of a hill. What's the issue there? This program really is about being the carrier of last resort. Uh, while the Communications Act does permit multiple providers in rural areas to receive subsidies, somebody has to be responsible uh, in case there's no one else to provide service. That's the structure of the Communications Act, and that's what this funding is, is really meant to ensure. Uh, there are only a couple of types of companies that uh, have been traditional 
providers of that sort, universal service providers, those that would be willing and, and able to provide service to every single person in a geographic area, no matter how far out that last home is, whether it's another mile down the road or a couple of miles down the road, um, it's been the telephone companies and it's been electric companies, electric co-ops for the most part. Uh, it's, it is not today, I, at least I'm unaware of any rural area in the company, in the country, uh, where a fixed wireless provider, a spectrum based provider is the only provider of service is that carrier of last resort, uh, has been designated as a carrier of last resort by a state commission, um, and has that responsibility. Uh, it's, it's possible to build networks so that that last 100 feet, 100 yards, is a wireless link. Uh, it's often a more expensive network to build than the kind of network that is often built by fixed wireless providers where they might put uh, radio equipment on a water tower or on poles or on, or on um, buildings in order to provide their service. You've got to be able to get everywhere. You've got to be able to get everywhere um, regardless of terrain, regardless of foliage, regardless of weather, regardless of anything. The issue I would you know, suggest to the FCC and those who would bid planning to use, use wireless technology is um, you could look at just about any fixed wireless provider's website, look at their terms and conditions, and they all have exceptions. They all will say that uh, you cannot count on being able to get service. Now, that's, that, that's perfectly fine if you're just a provider of service. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, the WISPs and the others have been a valuable uh, uh, provider of Internet service over the years. But Carrier of Last Resort has other responsibilities. And those responsibilities often imply that there's additional cost to it. And it's additional cost not just to provide some level of service, but whatever level of service that you're bidding for in the auction. Uh, again, I, I look at what companies submit to the FCC in their uh, semi-annual reports, the 477 form reports as to their level of service. Uh, we examine markets. We look at competitive uh, markets for everywhere that, that we're going to do business, everywhere that co-ops are going to do business. Uh, there's a lot of disconnect between what people say they can provide and what actually gets provided. Uh, most wireless services that are provided in rural areas are at the one and a half megabit per second, three or five or maybe 10 megabits per second. And if that's what people are bidding for, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's perfectly fine as long as they can get everywhere. Uh, to the extent folks start bidding at that 25 megabit, 100 megabit, gigabit uh, service tier, I think they're going to have to demonstrate they have the spectrum uh, sufficient to deliver those services. They have plans in place that they can get to every single customer. I think that ought to be examined by the FCC because you don't see any market in the country today where the dominant provider anywhere in the country is a fixed wireless provider. Uh, or a satellite provider. The country is still served by wireline networks. Mobile networks are served by wireline networks. 
Uh, building fiber deep into networks is the goal of improving internet service, the goal of improving broadband generally, improving mobile services, getting to 5G, getting to all of the promises of the internet. You have to build fiber and you have to build fiber deep into networks, close to people's homes or in what we do, all the way to the home. And anybody that thinks it, there's a shortcut to it, because they can use spectrum at long distances, or they can use satellites, hasn't yet demonstrated, as far as I know, that they can get everywhere in geographic areas in rural America and deliver those services to every home in rural America, just like telephone co-ops do, just like electric co-ops do, just like the traditional carrier of last resort operators have done for decades. So as we're running out of time here, um, I, I think you're going to be putting up a blog post soon on the Connexon website that'll have some some additional details that I, I hope people will look at. Um, and I also just want to remind people that if you enjoyed listening to this, <laughs> you should really make sure you're commenting on this proceeding. This is this is what's going to make a difference. I mean, many of us have commented on the net neutrality rules where we're one of 20 million people contributing. Um, this is something where individual comments will make a big difference because you're not going to see a ton of comments on it. So please take some time to, to listen to this interview, read the transcript, and make some informed comments. I do think there is a, a resolution to the difficulties the FCC faces, which is to change these programs from a command and control. We give money to a monopolist. We ensure that they're a monopolist uh, over a period of time, a decade or longer, to change that to a consumer-led program where the consumers decide what service they want and whoever is capable of providing the service the consumers want, that's the one that gets the subsidy in areas the FCC has deemed necessary. You could run that through the auction. Don't limit whoever can get funding in a rural area to a single winner in the auction. You could give the winner a period of time to start building out their network. But if they're not capable, rather than taking the money back, or rather than trying to find somebody else then to come in, or rather than re-auctioning money, if you allow any other service provider, if you allow them to compete for the customer and also compete for the subsidy, you would resolve every single issue that I've just raised. And, and to that, I would hope satellite providers would agree with me, fixed wireless providers would agree with me, traditional telephone companies, cable operators, fiber providers, all would agree with me that they ought to let the consumer lead the decisions as to where the public's money flows. We might have some listeners who are tearing their hair out thinking, uh, but these areas don't have a choice. That's the problem. And I just wanted to make sure people are aware that you know that. You know that better than most people. Your belief is that um, when there's more money in those areas, we'll see, you know, maybe WISPs will get more active if satellite companies want to compete for that. They can. But I think fundamentally, you believe, and in part because you've talked with so many of these folks, rural electric cooperatives are going to be increasingly going into those areas, and you think that they will inevitably be the best choice. People don't have a choice, not for lack of money that's been spent. The FCC spends $4.5 billion year in, year out on rural America for telecommunication service. The problem is uh, other providers, competitors, others don't have access to the funding, and the funding is necessary in large parts of the country. The problem is the design of the program. The reason there's no choice today for broadband is that the programs have been designed for decades to limit choice to a single provider. And if the single provider, not facing competition, has decided to limit the availability, the, the speeds, 
There is no choice. It's the design of the program that has led to lack of choice, not the other way around. It's not that, oh, there's no choice. How could I think that there would be choice? People are building today. Communities are building fixed wireless, satellite, guys that I work for, electric cooperatives are all building, all without access to funding. If you allowed not the funding to go to a single company to make sure that an area was a monopoly, but to make sure that what the consumers chose was how the funding was delivered, then you would unleash the funding to the areas where it was needed. It's an entirely different approach, and it isn't one that the FCC is going to adopt because the FCC traditionally follows a certain path. This is a different path entirely. I think there's a lot of good points there. Like many listeners, I have no doubt. I, I'm frustrated to cut it off here, but I have to in part because I have to run and also because we're trying to keep the podcast to a more reasonable length. But John, I have no doubt we'll have you back on and we really appreciate uh, all the time and work that, that you um, have shared with us. Thank you, Chris. That was John Chambers from Connexon and Christopher discussing rural connectivity and the Connect America Fund. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Subscribe to this podcast and the Building Local Power and Local Energy Rules podcasts. You can access them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed to Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 268 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Music.